be full of fright. I dreamt that I was with the devil below in his great big fiery hall, where the devil was giving a ball. I checked my coat and hat and started gazing at the merry crowd who came to witness the show, and I must confess to you, there were many there I knew. Hello. Hi. At the devil's ball. At the devil's ball. Welcome to the Dispatchist Podcast, a friendly conversation about eternal damnation. I'm Jacob. I'm Jamin. And I'm Victoria. Uh, did anybody bring anything to the party? I did. I brought a pint of plain. And do you know what plain is? Yogurt? <laughs> if you're boring. Uh, no. no. Uh, well, yes. But also pint of plain is typically Guinness. But here it's actually a coffee stout because I don't have any Guinness. But it is in reference to one of my favorite authors, Flann O'Brien, who wrote about hell. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Why is it called plain? You know, that is a very good question. I think it's just because it's the regular draft, you know, the, the, the working man's drink. But I should look into that. I think that's a good a good point of research for, for next time. But there's a, a poem, famous poem called A Pint of Plain is Your Only Man. Ah. And the Dubliners also, they sang a song that was a version of the poem as mm. well. And Flann O'Brien has done several different versions of that poem as well. So it's A Pint of the Black Stuff. A Pint of the Black Stuff. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I brought a couple dozen deviled eggs. It's a twist on a bit of a recipe. It's paprika and absinthe. I uh, mixed it together just like my mother never actually did. I made them early in the morning, and I, on the drive over, they were in the trunk of the car for a while, but they still should be pretty good. So help yourselves. Okay. Weather's a little cooler, so maybe we'll survive this one. I'm game. What color would that be? Because, I mean, green already. Well, Green and and paprika, which is reddish, and then the yolk, which is yellowish. I would describe it as visceral. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I brought the entertainment today, which this week is being lost in the cavern of the miserly every week with idolaters uh, guarded by a one-bodied weeping devil. Mm. Oh, good. I have to remind you that hell is infinite and its torments are unimaginable. Mm-hmm. Kind of like prom night. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so while I was setting up the podcast, I, my husband downstairs told me to give him hell. And I don't really have a response to that. That was his one line for the day. <laughs> like that's all he said today was that one thing. Yeah. Yes. It's kind of nice. <laughs> so this podcast is going to be about hell, which big infinite topic goes back thousands of years but to start off with what is hell you know i'm going to start i'm just going to start right now hell for the specific laboratory purposes of this podcast i think we're going to be focusing on the judeo-christian hell of eternal torment because i think that's kind of the baseline for the hell story in terms of like where it is now in modern horror movies etc and that's kind of where i want to begin anything else side topic that's an interesting, it's an interesting place to start, because I think that's where everybody starts in their hell journey, right? If you have a hell journey, you start with it. We, in 2020, we're all on a hell journey. We're all on a hell journey, yeah. This, uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll start with two things. What is uh-huh. hell? Hell, as I've learned, 
at a hell as was taught to me, mm-hmm. hell as I've slowly come to realize is something I never understood. So at the very beginning, hell as a young man going to you know Sunday school in the mornings on Sundays and teaching uh, it later and teaching it later very much so. Hell is the place where bad people go, and who mm-hmm. are bad people? Bad people are those who go against the will of the divine. To keep it simple, from the, you know, fifth grade perspective, the divine is that specific, your God, of which, of course, there is only one. So if you go against the will of God, you go to hell. What is hell? Hell is undesirable. How undesirable? It ranges in breadth and depth. Hell is just a hot, fiery lake where sinners go. Or hell is separation from the divine. Once you get into your more academic reaches of Sunday school. And believe me, like some of the really, really in-depth Sunday schools we've gone through, they're, they're fantastic. So hell is a hot, burny place. Do you want to stick your hand in the stove? No. Why not? It's hot. Hot burns. I don't like it, right? And then we, we discover more the divine is the divine and thus is utter joy being in the presence of the divine. If hell is just separation from the divine or a schism from the divine, you're in hell because you're not in heaven. A lot of the commentators on hell would argue that if you're like making a top seven list and there is a top seven list of torments in hell, which ranges from the sight of the devil to the smell to the noise, separation from God is the number one on the list frequently. I mean, oh, the, really? fire, the fire makes the best postcards. Mm-hmm. But usually people start, if they're listing the top 10, with the separation from God. That's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Mm. And as I've started this journey with you guys, I've realized that not many people who are in Sunday school or teach Sunday school cite their sources. <laughs> and having gone through an extensive academic journey in my later adulthood, where I learned things like research and more research and researching the people who research the things I'm researching and citing them and seeing who they cited. There's none of that. It's just, listen, young man, behave or you're going to go to hell. That sounds like a song. Mm. Mm-hmm. In the key of E minor. <laughs> so that's, that's me. This is hell was a very simple thing. And now mm-hmm. it's a very complex thing. And I'm, I'm still wrapping my, my mind around it. Yeah, I'm still wrapping my mind around it, too, because I started out with the same kind of children's view of hell as, yeah, the place where you go because you're bad and you're going to get punished, but you're saved from it if you just accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. But my my vision changed while I was still a child for a few reasons. One, I was told that all of my Jewish friends were also going to hell for Absolutely no reason. <laughs> that was a hard one. <laughs> that was a, that was one where I was just like, hmm, yeah, uh, I think I'm 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 out of here. But the other one was this. This is weirdly formative. But uh, I was in Sunday school and we were making a little construction paper garden on the wall, like God's garden, right? And so I was really into making spiders. So I made this like lovely green spider with a little hourglass on his back. And I proudly put him in God's garden. And the Sunday school teacher came up and she was, you know, ooing and aahing over everybody's stuff and came to my spider. 
And she was kind of puzzled by it. And she said, well, children, I guess we all know who the spider is, right? And so I thought it was Jesus. Like, yay! Oh, no. <laughs> I made Jesus. Oh, but no. no. She's like, yeah, the devil. I mean, you can't have God's garden without the devil. And well, that's so, not fair. <laughs> no, it's totally not fair. So that also kind of me, made me rethink the whole idea of what heaven and hell were. Poor young you. Pardon I me? I think I met her um, because <laughs> I used to work in a church. I used to work in a church bookstore. And you know that book, Stella Luna? It's about bats, you know it. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. That author, artist, did a very pretty one about tree snake called Verdi. Beautiful book. Mm-hmm. Um, and this woman, who always had very strong opinions to share with us, came in and said, you need to take that off the shelf because that's the devil. Oh, my God. Yeah, I don't. And, and so it kind of made me rethink the whole idea of religion, A of all, into what heaven and hell were. And so hell to me became a lot of things like it became where people who are frustrated by free will push things that they don't like. So hell, uh, <laughs> hell is mm. sort of the land of, of uh, just examples of free, of free will. Um, Interesting. That's like Lilith there. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, hell is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's full of strong-willed individuals, let's say um, that have given a, that have bad PR and the other idea is just hell is banality. And that one is probably the one I've landed on most recently through Flan O'Brien, the book, The Third Policeman, because he's, his definition of hell is that hell goes round and round in shape. It is circular and by nature, it is interminable, repetitive and nearly unbearable. So hell is excru- it's excruciatingly human and it can be mapped and it can be known. And in that way, it's very different from heaven. So one of the orders of angels, of which there are somewhere between nine and I'm sure thousands, is the ephemerids. And their entire thing is for a day, they rise in the morning, spend all day circling the throne of God saying, Alleluia, Alleluia, and then they die. And that doesn't sound very different from what you've described. <laughs> exactly. So, like, that's very blurry. I mean, in, in that little construction paper iteration of the cosmos, one person's heaven is another person's hell. So I think part of part of this is kind of what drove me away from hell, in part because I read too much Nietzsche in college, and that'll that'll mess you up. I mean, when you start looking at all religions as power transactions, it, it cheapens them. And I do still love religion, but I start questioning it in terms of like who gains, who benefits. Did you gaze into the void? No, I have a very short attention span. I don't think I made it to the void. The fair. You know, and then I then I decided that I was gay, and that kind of questioned everything about everything because that's obviously you go to hell if you're gay. So with the Jews, but you know, all potential boyfriends will end up there eventually. So I, it doesn't seem <laughs> like a downside. Mm-hmm. Except to always be running into your exes. But it's infinite. There'd be a lot of them. But an infinity of exes would also be kind of horrible too. Um, <laughs> We're kind of at the same time. I've, I've been a Dungeons and Dragons player since I was nine, I think. And they do say that Dungeons and Dragons will lead you to the occult. And it does. <laughs> Eventually, it just takes a long time because it develops a fascination with magic and mythology and things like that that has lasted me to this to this day. And it's really fun to see how the classical elements of like Greek hell and Milton have ended up in the Dungeons and Dragons version of hell and the story of Asmodeus and all that mess. It's really neat. So I, I look forward to unpacking Dungeons and Dragons Hell. I may be the only person in the room, but that's okay. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> as a as a Unitarian Universalist, though, we tend to look at all religions as being technologies. And I think one thing I'd like to get out of this discussion is, you know, hell is a technology, but what good does it do? Does it do good? I want to know that there is some good coming from this technology because it's a very old machine that we've had for millennia. And I want to know what it does that, that keeps it around, that keeps it in, that we maintain it and like oil it every year. <laughs> I, I was going to say a machine is a machine. It produces an output. You can't say that output is good or bad, but you just said, why have we kept it around for so long? Obviously, if it wasn't beneficial to society, there was no point in maintaining this machine. Yes. Right? You have a machine, and all it does is draw smiley faces on the wall. While this is technologically advanced, there's no reason for this machine to exist. And so what you just said, if it weren't producing results that directly affected society— we wouldn't maintain it. Interesting. I think, I think so. I know the results it's supposed to produce. It's supposed to scare people into obedience, but it clearly doesn't. So mm-hmm. what else does it do? I think, I think that's my big question at the end of all of this. Hmm. That kind of brings up the question then, is The Sims a version of hell? Because so many people I know have stories of working <laughs> out taboos, in the flesh world, working them out in the Sims world. I mean, the difference between an alternate reality and hell is very subjective. Hell uh-huh. and fairyland and the dreamland and cocaine. It's all one metamyth that kind of flows into itself in other places. So maybe the Sims is a part of that. Mm-hmm. And, and Animal Crossing is like a very kawaii <laughs> version of hell. I, I hope Animal <laughs> Crossing is heaven. I think it, I think you must be right. Um, if there's so nice. a heaven, mm-hmm. if it's a if there's a heaven, The Sims is hell. Animal Crossing is heaven. If The Sims is hell, where would you place Cookie Clicker? <laughs> is that like purgatory? So why the hell are we doing this? I think we all originally had motives, and and they're all a little bit different. I thought this would be a great topic for a podcast because I admired the infinity and grandeur and pageantry and sensationalism of it and was kind of amazed that it was not something that was occupied in podcast land. There's no one sitting in this niche of fun and hell. And I'm shocked. It seems so logical. Also, what other topic can still get a rise after 3,000 years? I've always been the kind who who likes to learn things and then immediately teach the things I learned to other people. You discover something, you find somewhere, a new restaurant, and you take people there. And the concept of hell, as we've understood it, you know, this this has changed my ideas of hell, and I would like to explore this together. I didn't know that hell had changed so much from the beginning. Ten years ago, hell was a thing. A hundred years ago, hell was a thing. A thousand years ago hell was a thing. It's evolved. The hell we have now has evolved. And I, I'd really like to just explore why it's evolved, what it was originally, why the hell has it done this? So I would say I am interested in hell because I find it aesthetically pleasing in a lot of ways. I'm intrigued by the artistry of hell and renditions of hell, as well as pop culture representations of hell, and why cultures around the world and through time have 
chosen different representations or chosen to use it in pop culture in a variety of different ways. And I think personally, I'm struggling myself with, uh, as somebody who is, I suppose, agnostic, like I'd like to believe there's something out there. Like I believe in ghosts. I totally, you know, like, why not? I feel like there's a lot of energy in the world and we can't deny that that energy makes things happen. It's comforting to me. And so I kind of want to know like what personally it means to have this sort of duality, I, I guess. And is it, I don't know, are, is there such a thing as evil or is that just sort of people outsourcing responsibility for things? Mm, so it's kind of just a, <laughs> it's kind of just my, my own personal, personal demons, if you will, as well as my own just kind of uh, eccentric and aesthetic taste. That's, that's very interesting. And I'm glad you said that because we said uh, Judeo Judeo Islamic and Neo Judeo Islamic, the Abrahamic. Yes, Abrahamic, this concept of hell. So if hell is a thing and you have cultures which don't have this, if you have reincarnation, if you have your, if you have the Eastern. Don't um, make the mistake of thinking that reincarnation excuses you from hell. It does not. Well, last life I was a bug. It was great. <laughs> I flew around, I bit people, and now I'm me. So you said ghosts. Can you have a hell which doesn't accept all souls? Do all souls have to either go to hell or not go to hell if after you've spent your time as a ghost, is your ghosthood purgatory? Is it part of the hell cycle? Are these rhetorical questions or do you want an answer? Is there an answer? Yes. <laughs> Let's hear it. Okay. So originally Christianity and Judaism did not actually have the concept of immediate plunging into hell. That is a later edition. And generally speaking, the dead were dead until the great judgment, the millennium, a thousand years later, 10,000 years later, whenever it happens. So until then, your body was inert. If you are encountered as a ghost, it is because you are moving around during the time between death and the time of judgment. Any of the ghosts that are encountered in the Bible, and there are some, are shades of that, of that slumbering death. Hmm. Thank you. The more you know... Wow. I want, the, I want that little starburst. <laughs> but I have to say, if I say anything like that, please bear in mind that like six people disagree with me, at least maybe hundreds. So there's no right. There's just kind of variations on the story. I, I, I like thinking that you like exactly six people disagree with you. Like every single time you're like six people. I mean, Tertullian. He hates me. <laughs> Or is it 666 people? Oh. Mm. Uh, Snap. I think it's like 685. Like the number of the mm. beast is, is way off. <laughs> it's been, <laughs> there's been inflation. Yeah. And um, what if it was hexadecimal? Mm-hmm. It's also, I mean, like how many heavy metal songs reference the number of the beast? I wonder if it's exactly the number of the beast. Hmm. Not Just yet. Just inflation. Not yet. I, I mean, heavy metal is on the decline. I'm positive we're at like maybe 300 tops because okay. there's only so many Finnish hardcore black metal bands out there. <laughs> and it's not and a popular genre. Yeah. 
Norwegian black metal. I love it. <laughs> I, I missed a show. I missed my favorite Norwegian metal band playing in Austin four days ago. It made me Six, sad. 616. 616? Yeah. Did you just Google it? That's not fair. Well, I remembered that it wasn't 666. Give me that credit. So how did they play a show if we're in, their, uh, uh, if we're in a pandemic? Or it's, they're just that metal that they don't care about pandemic. I don't understand live music. And I live in Austin. So I don't know. Okay. I'm going to look into this. It was a, it was a small venue. The band mm-hmm. was called Amaranth. Ooh. I'm, I'm sure I could look it up. But the venue was South Austin, South of the River somewhere. Interesting. Hmm. Well, we'll see if we can put a video on that of that concert in, uh, in the show notes if we have show notes. <laughs> We need to have show notes. I hope uh-huh. we'll have show notes. Uh, do you want to go into history? Sure. sure. Okay. So in kind of the, the venue, venue, line of thought of what is hell, I think it is worth talking about where hell came from. And I do not doubt for an instant that every single like clause is going to be like its own discussion down the road of big or small, because this goes so far back and it's so interesting. Um, so this is going to be a very brief summary of the history of hell. And just interrupt me, please, please interrupt me because it'll be kind of boring otherwise. So I started this kind of thinking when I looked at the map that Mesopotamia was like way over here and Greece was in Greece and Rome was in Rome and this entire area was like the size of the United States. But when you're talking of kind of the crucible of like early hell mythology, you know, what fed into the Judeo-Christian version of hell, all these cultures, Egypt, Rome and Greece and Israel, they were like in the same place. Anthony the Great was a Greek king that became the pharaoh and... 60 years before Israel was a Roman state, it was an independent nation. And 600 years before, it was borrowing money from Phoenicia to pay to build the great temple. So at the same time, a place could have recently, within the last like 50 years, Greek and Roman and Jewish and Egyptian elements and rulership. It's like Six Flags over Texas. Um, <laughs> but less racist. Well, I mean, that, yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> So that was kind of a new thing for me was knowing because it's not like I was looking at this region saying, well, how can you make these connections? Because where the cross pollination is covering like this area that's the size of like the Midwest. But no, this was like the same zip code had all these threads weaving together. And there's so much cultural cross pollination that it really makes the story of hell kind of easier to see how it threads together. So the earliest stories we have along these lines are from Mesopotamia. This is like Ishtar and Inanna and that journey into the underworld where she takes off six articles of clothing and gets judged and things like that. And that's kind of the first underworld journey around this time. Like the Abrahamic Abraham actually was in Mesopotamia uh, in, the, in the exile from the first temple. So from there, we can kind of look at Egyptian elements and with Egyptian elements of the afterlife, the, the bad people are extinguished. Um, maybe they burn for a while, but they go away. And that's carried through in the Jewish faith for a long time. But you get the idea of this stern judgment and this very ceremonial underworld. And the good people get sent to the good place. And the bad people die again. They die a second death. And their oblivion is is really kind of where they end up. And when you look at some of the Jewish words for hell, like uh, Gehenna, these are discussions of burning. They're not necessarily burning forever. The fires burn forever, but people burn away. So that's kind of how the early Jews likely saw hell in the afterlife. At the same time, you have Greece, where you have um, an eternity of just tedium, kind of that, that bland gray hell. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Mesopotamians had that as well. Well, hell was like after a glorious life, all you get is dust forever. And that's kind of the Greek and Mesopotamian hell. Now, Greece did have some glorious things for great people, maybe later on in its cycle, um, and some eternal punishments. But those were people that like gave Zeus the finger. <laughs> um, so punishment was not really a thing. It was just gray. And that was all it was. Uh, the Jews picked up hell um, and carried it a long ways. And for a while, it was kind of the same way. Maybe we just die and burn up if we're bad. And then the good people would be judged when the Messiah appears a thousand years hence, that sort of thing. But early on, the resurrection of the body was more metaphorical. And maybe God was not there to walk with the individual, but maybe God was there to resurrect the people. And so the eternal life was for the tribe in some, mm. in some versions of the story, depending on who you read. But later on, as we kind of get closer to uh, Jesus' period, uh, hell becomes more judgy, apocalyptic literature becomes a thing, and people kind of get vindictive, and they develop this deep sense of justice. And they, maybe, maybe they steal that from the Greeks and the, Rome, and the Egyptians? I don't know. But towards the period where Jesus is becoming around, apocalyptic literature is big, and that does contain a large slice of hell in it as well, um, the judgment and things like that. When Jesus is born around that period, there is kind of this this wave of hell as place of judgment and a place where bad people can at least burn up and more of the sense that the afterlife was a thing that would be there for you later on. Maybe not immediately, but down the road. One source I was reading and I can cite it and I will in the show notes. I'll say that so many times. Uh, it does suggest that Jesus probably believed in like death and then resurrection a thousand years later, not death and immediate ascension. And that kind of changed 300 years down the road in the Middle Ages when he, uh, when Jesus harrowed hell and rescued the patriarchs and all that. That gave a more immediate heroic sense of death. But in Jesus's time, death was probably a thousand years of slumber. Mm. I don't know. I started reading the history of hell and it was, rem- I, it's interesting how judgment is not always a necessary part of hell. Yeah, that's hard. And sometimes when you think like with the, the Mesopotamians, that death was eternal bad, even if you were good. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, you know, when I, when I think of paganism and atheism as well, you know, the important thing is how you live your life now, not what happens afterwards. So that immediacy is a part of life and you have to live now because whether you're gone in an instant or whether you're spending a millennia as a shade of yourself, just waiting for your grandson to show up with sheep's blood, you know, that's, this, is where, this is where the important stuff is. Mhm. Mhm. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting cuz some element of some elements of heaven also include judgment. And also I'm interested to see where the and this may be another topic but the bardo, the um the Buddhist idea of the of limbo mm-hmm. where that kind of fits in. It's kind of purgatorial, isn't it? Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. Okay. But not as maybe not as excruciating i suppose oh no you're wrong there is it is it okay they're very creative <laughs> okay okay because i i just I, I don't know it'd be fun to talk about the bardo because uh especially george saunders book lincoln and the bardo I, some of the buddhist tells they really get into some very like strange fetishy territory in terms of like tortures and torments so i look forward to having that discussion down the road so we I, yeah like is hell also just an excuse for people to work out their kinks <laughs> Oh, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Duh. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You're going to go back to history in a bit. Sure, but I can stop. 
Well, no, I, I want you to go back to history as I look at Lincoln and the Bardo on Amazon. Uh, okay, so history, history. Let me ask you, we've got hell and we've got the afterlife. Uh-huh. And I'd like you to kind of talk about this a little bit. When was Odysseus? When was Homer? General I era. I mean, I don't have large numbers, but let's just say 600 BC. Okay. So Greek, Odysseus, you've got Hades, Pluto, and the underworld, and you've talked about that. But then Egyptian, like the, the early pyramids, which are two to 3,000 BC, have their afterlife because you've got their spleens in jars. You've got the... Yeah. the gold and the bits for the afterlife to prepare them for the afterlife Uh um we're hitting this i feel like you're hitting this right around zero bce and then moving forward i kind of am are you going to address early afterlife it is really hard to generalize egypt because that covers so many things they dabbled with um monotheism and then every single town had its own god we named our dog after one of their gods there's so many of them. <laughs> that's um, that's not dabbling with monotheism. What? You you can't uh, say they, they dabbled with monotheism and then went. Well they did. They 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 threw it away later on. Okay. So I don't know. I mean, if we discuss like the formative afterlife of Egypt, like the, the Book of the Dead is their signature like guide to dying properly. And I think the message of that book is that if you know the rules well, okay, so there is a judgment. It's a hard judgment. You're likely to do badly on it. It's like a history exam from a bad college course. You're going to probably fail. But the Book of the Damned is... Book of the Damned? The Book of the Damned is by Charles Fort, and it was written in 1940-ish. Um, the Book of the Dead is a cheat sheet to your hell exam, your, heaven, your afterlife exam. If you've studied it, you will know the motions and know the forms to get past most of the hurdles, and it makes everything much easier. I think we're looking at it less cynically. You might say it's the like forms to properly appreciate the gods as you go down that journey. So that's kind of where the book of the dead is from. But I think the Egyptian concept of the afterlife, it started out as I understand it as like just reserved for pharaohs and everybody else just died and went away. But over time it became a little more populist and then everybody could be there if you had the right answers to the test. It depends on what time, what region, what pharaoh. Okay. And this is this, this, we can go like the, the Greek five rivers afterlife predates hell. Sure. Definitely feeds into it. So at some point, should we say with the red light on, the afterlife predates hell? Yes. I think that's safe to say, except that historically, maltheisms tend to develop before theisms. People fear God then they worship God out of fear, then they worship God out of love, and then God loves them. It tends to be in that order. So heaven does not likely predate hell, but the afterlife probably does. Maybe? If there were a timeline, and I'm not uh-huh. saying there is, the construct would be afterlife, comma, hell, comma, heaven. I think the structure would be fear and propitiation of the devil, at the same time, concern about the afterlife and what happens to us, because that is like the ultimate question of early humanity and humanity in general is where do we go from here? And then together, those ideas grow into a more approachable and friendly theology as we can kind of get a better idea of justice. As we see there are good things, we don't have to fear them as much. 
that's what a lot of like late 19th century, early 20th, 20th century, Frasier-y, Golden Bowie scholars would say. And they do tend to make things connect even if they don't really. But I think that's what they would suggest, that, that style of scholarship. Okay, so from the anthropological, sociological, primitive sociology, pr- primitive people, of which uh, we can't say too primitive because they had sharp bits. Okay, so it was antagonist, then protagonist. I think that's a safe generality. Interesting. And this kind of goes, this goes to modern day, like Maslowian, like the, your, your hierarchy of needs. Early man, early society, who was very much advanced, spent a large amount of his time feeding himself. He was a hunter-gatherer. He woke up. He looked for roots to eat. He, you know, fed himself. As he, as he became more of a society and he had more free time, he could ponder such things as yeah. why do bad things happen? Philosophy develops over time. I think if you look at the great mythologies, you know, we fear the thunder before we worship the sky. Hmm. That's why Tiamat is destroyed by Marduk later on. Interesting. Can I get back to my topic? Yes. First, I oh. want to say that uh, when you first said Frasier, I, I thought of TV's Frasier, and then I had to adjust. So Wait, what was he not? <laughs> Remember that special episode of Frasier? <laughs> we discussed the, the golden and the rain god. <laughs> oh, dear. Myth of the King. Please continue. Okay. Okay, so cultural threads running together to Jesus. Jesus to... I'm glad we can actually shortcut around this. Uh, Jesus dies. Stories are told about him. And over the next 350 years, people write commentaries. They expand on the literature of the apocalypse, that sort of thing. Until about 350 when the Middle Ages start officially. And there's a big banner about that. And Christianity has made the legal religion of Rome. And Christianity by that time has spread to you know about about a quarter of Rome. It's like spread dotted all over this area the size of the United States again. It's just a, a large spread. And it's starting to contain a lot of different cultures and elements on its own. And over the next hundred years, it starts to be like the religion of Rome. During this time, Christian literature starts to be kind of a thing in like entertainment and pop culture of the time. And vision literature becomes huge. Vision literature is, you know, kind of in the style of Dante. Someone journeys into hell, they return with their stories. A friend of a friend dies and comes back and tells the story of their journey into the darkness or the light. A nun was sick for many weeks, then comes back with the story of her, her this and that. And these visions become big entertainment. They're good marketing for Christianity because they say, you know, judgment, peace, paradise, etc. And they're framed in a way that entertainment is safe because it's within the, the Christian story and mythology. But also, it's it's the horror movie of the day. It's pop culture entertainment. And as the form of the vision literature develops and becomes its own major genre, it gets more sensational and more entertaining. And that kind of extends to about 1250 or so. And at the same time, well, later, about 600 onwards, the mystery play becomes a bigger and bigger thing. And this is where church people or the priests and clergy or the village acts out Bible stories. And so there's like these 20 different like major cycles, 10 cycles of, of stories and things like that. And maybe the number may be high, maybe like three. I don't know. But it's, it's more than one of these, these epic cycles and stories, you know, Noah's Ark, Revelations, the Holy Family. These are all important stories and they get retold in pageant. And that is pop culture as well. 
And that becomes kind of a very popular understanding of hell. And the devil is the character to play because everybody loves playing him. He eats the scenery, except that you do sometimes have to put fireworks up your tail. <laughs> so there's a risk. Um, you know that the really cute image of the hellmouth? I think hellmouths are so cuddly. But the kind they of the are, big, like, are. bear weasel seal face hellmouth with fangs. Always a little kind of, hellmouth. Yeah, with like a sad expression. <laughs> it's like a big hell dog. Mm-hmm. That is like stage setting. That's from the like mystery play stage manual, that that image. If you go back far enough, you see these things are kind of interchangeable. So this is hell, and hell is popular and exciting and fun. Um, the priests sometimes kind of put it down because it's too fun, and sometimes they raise it up because it's a good morality fun. And that extends till Dante. And Dante kind of kills hell and kind of redeems hell because he liberates it from literalism, and he makes hell allegorical, and he makes purgatory an escape from hell. So between these things and kind of the rise of purgatory as well, hell loses a lot of its hold over people. And it's no longer a valid literary form because it's been done so well. And that's kind of the end of hell as a real place to visit because then we hit the Renaissance and rationality takes over in small ways. Rationality is the worst. Ah, I guess. you, You try putting rationality on the roof of the Sistine Chapel. I mean, come on. His test tubes. God. <laughs> God holding a copy of Hoyle's Rules of Order out to Adam. Uh, anyway, that's kind of a, a very thumbnail, broad brush. You know, your mileage may vary on any one point in time there. Mm-hmm. But Dante's to blame. Take away. Well, he did a lot to, to raise hell up and make it amazing. He actually kind of invented purgatory as redemptive area. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of uh, the limbo as being like a kind of a safe place that wasn't that bad, actually kind of nice. That was him. He, I think he added the forest of suicides as well. I haven't seen any reference to him to it earlier than that. So he really did add a lot of elements to hell and he made it a place for redemption. I feel like a lot of apologists are kind of two faced about this because they say, you know, hell's for people that want to be there, but they also say, that when you are in hell, all that's good of you boils away and there's nothing left but the bad. So that's why you want to be in hell. And that seems kind of cheaty. But mm-hmm. redemptive hell, Dante kind of did that for Christianity in a small way. Yeah. Seems like kind of blaming the victim. I can, I can <laughs> see that. <laughs> okay, so a couple questions. Japan has had a forest of suicides for a very long time. No relation. No relation. I'll take that. Moving on. I mentioned earlier citing sources Uh as Dante is doing this. Was he just pulling this out of his firework imbued tail (laughs) or was was he pulling from somewhere? It's like, so Dante, he's writing, he's scribbling. He's got his quill loaded with iron gall ink. And he says, somebody told me this or I'm just going to have a good time writing some stuff. So one place that Dante really, we're going to have a Dante episode or six down the road, you know. Fair. Um, One thing that Dante really kind of emphasized, I I think it's contrapposto, and I may be wrong on that word. Google it for me at some point in time. Um, That is the idea that, you know, let the punishment fit the crime. So the wastrels and the spendthrifts are at war with each other, both pushing boulders against each other. And the... The wastrels are saying, why save? And, this, and the misers are saying, why spend? And they're continually fighting each other with these boulders. 
And that's kind of an image of like their central sin brought to life. That's something that Dante did. But there were elements of that running through it. And the vision of Tundal, which I will definitely talk about because it's got great sex scenes, and the uh, the vision of Drythelm and other older visions, you can kind of feel elements of them weaving themselves into Dante. Like he pulls from existing sources and styles. The vision literature was a major genre that he was drawing from very heavily, but he framed it as art and allegory in a way that hadn't been done before. That was his one of his innovations. But a lot of the individual elements were there, like cold, freezing hell that Satan has settled into. That's the hell of the Norse, which had been in circulation for a while as well. A lot of Dante's elements are, are Christianizing Roman and Greek uh, underworld elements and bringing those into the Christian world. So he kind of unifies those ideas. He brought a lot of sources together. He added some original things in, in ways that were transformative. So what were you saying? You were using the phrase, the contrapposto? I or, think that's the word. Hang on, I'm going to look that one up. Because contrapposto is like a pose, right? Where it's sort of like balancing in a sculpture. Is it contrapositive? One second, I'm going to type. Yeah, I've got an asymmetrical arrangement of the human figure. But I thought contrapposto oh, was against it's, the light. It's contraposition. Contra, it's contrapasso. Contrapasso. And that is ah. suffer the opposite is the meaning of it. And that's Con- kind of, let, again, let the punishment fit the, fit the crime. Contrapasso. Okay. Okay. Cool. I learned something new. Yeah. Oh. That's kind of a fundamental law when you are going into the into the abyss with Dante is that your crime, your sins are reflected in your punishment in different ways. Uh, another one is the kind of the sins of the body get, get light in Dante, but like the lustful are tossed around in this tornado because like their bodies are not under their control. And that's the metaphor that is kind of the reality that being a, uh, a lustful person leads you to in hell. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's literary. It's entertaining to think about. Well, the change, the, like the impact Dante had on hell is amazing. And I think one of the questions that, Victoria, you, you asked when we were discussing this was like, are we remapping hell? And I think Dante did it, and that was okay. So I don't see that as being a problem for us. Not to compare us to Dante, although, you know, hmm. I do have a poetry degree. <laughs> <laughs> like, why not? But, I mean, everybody's kind of left their marks on hell over over the centuries and maybe that's something we can still do uh, a, a, a work i've been working with a little bit lately is the bio- biology biography of a crazy demonologist from 1820 who got inspired by reading the dictionary infernal and then later on his writing was incorporated into the into a later version of the dictionary infernal by the author that he read so it's like these little circles and cycles are are there mm-hmm. yeah yeah we, we talk about are we remapping hell An author who greatly impacted my view of life, possibly a decade ago, possibly more decades ago, was Rob Bell, uh, who is a pastor of a church, Mars, possibly Hill Church. And he wrote a book called Velvet Elvis. And the book basically is summed up. He's in his basement. He finds a painting that his parents owned of Elvis on velvet, black velvet. I presume black lights were involved Very 70s. Very 70s. His parents loved it. This was the art. They saw it. This was their pop culture. And if you look at the current generation, we have a different art. 
we reshape our understanding of pop culture. The same with the church. Our concepts, our ideas of Christianity, of religion, is reshaped. Whereas in the past, we had this Velvet Elvis, and we look at this Velvet Elvis painting, and we're like, oh, this was relevant to the people of the time, but it is no longer relevant to us. Now we understand that current pop culture includes... Oh God, I don't even know. Like Miley Cyrus, is that a thing? Is, is that is that too old? Is there someone newer than Miley Cyrus? Who's the top? Who's the Megan the Stallion? Is uh, the kids love Megan the Stallion? Never, and, uh, never even heard that name. Okay, but back to are we reshaping hell? Yes, absolutely. Rob Bell, he says every generation reshapes this, and it may be small, it may be mild. We look back, it's like, oh, no one ever looks at Velvet Elvis. That's no longer a thing. Oh, man, back in your day, hell was only for the losers, and now hell is just for the bigots and the Jews. I had a professor of history, or English, or both, who said, I don't mean to trivialize, but philosophies are like hula hoops. They always come back in 20 years. (laughs) Much like ripped denim. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So are we remapping hell? Yes, 100%. The hell that we, the teachers to the youth, who are the only people that listen these days. Oh, you're being optimistic. Oh. oh. (laughs) So we are teaching a concept. The concept that they will teach when they come of age and become the teachers will be different. How different? Vast, slight, who knows? But yes, hell in 2020 is going to be outdated in 10 years and is vastly superior to the hell of 2010. The end. Well, uh, thank you all. Episode one, I think, is a go. Let's see if we can make it to episode two and then three and then 70. So um, uh, nice chatting with you. Well, thank you. And I think that's all the eternity we have time for today. So from all of us here, uh, we'll see you in hell. (laughs) This podcast is copyright 2020 by The Dispatchist and is Creative Commons. You're welcome to reuse with attribution. Look for us on your favorite podcast app. Say hi to us on Twitter or Gmail at The Dispatchist, no spaces. Check out our website, dispatch.ist, for more episodes, show notes, and a variety of hellish resources.